0: shaken welcome back I'm Rick Jordan and today we're going all in I have a return guest today who needs no introduction except that you need to go back and listen to the episode for part one because there's some things in his career that we didn't go through that we're going to today. You know, because uh, he's been an NCAA Division I college basketball player, a Citadel cadet, a SWAT team hostage negotiator, which is one of the things we're going to talk about today, and also the, the author of Sustainable Excellence, 10 Principles to Living Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life, Terry Tucker. Welcome back. Thanks, Rick. I'm really looking forward to talking with you again. Right on, man. Uh, So there's this thing that, you know, before we press record that I had in my head and I'm going to throw it at you right now. Cool. So we were, um, well, first, it's really good to have you back. I just, I really need to say that because I I remember our energy and just amazing vibes, man. Just incredible conversation. It was fun. For sure. And for real, everybody listening, go back and listen to part one of this. Uh, The link will be in the show notes. And it's just a phenomenal conversation. So one thing, I mean, Terry was a basketball player, NCAA Division I, and we were talking, having an offline conversation about... You know, I was looking for notes because I was like, where did we end up from the last show? You know, Where, where do we need to go? In? Because it's usually like, oh, we didn't get to this, right? And this is really good. We should have a part two, which is why we're here today. Um, like, like I, I don't take the notes because my team takes the notes for me because I'm not good at it. And Terry, you said... <laughs> It's good to have a team. Exactly. Right on. Uh, And here's here was the concept that I thought that I I refrained from saying before we hit record, which is there's a principle that I believe in. You know, while it's generally accepted that it's good to work on your weaknesses. You know, and I would say, especially in like personal development and all that I would completely agree with, but when it comes to some things in business, and this is one thing that's made me successful, and am curious as how this to relates to your, to your team sports experience that you have is that I've tried to make even stronger my strengths i've focused on that and getting really really good at the things that are my giftings and are my wheelhouse and things that i'm strong in to make me like near unbeatable in competition with my strengths rather than focusing on my weaknesses it's like i've brought in other people to compliment me in areas that i just don't want to do or I see them as just something I might never be good at that I'm not meant to do you know, so and so I, I focus a lot more energy on just solidifying my strengths than I do improving my weaknesses that was a thought I had and I'm curious as to what you feel about that
1: you know I, I think back on you know when I was playing basketball you know I started playing at nine years old and and I was very lucky I I happened to be in Columbus Ohio at the time and the, the guard on my, you know, I mean, I don't know. We were like eight or nine years old. I mean, we were just children. And, but the, the guard on my team was the son of the assistant coach at Ohio State. Wow. Uh, Bob Burkholder played, uh, was Fred Taylor's assistant coach. And so, you know, I mean, I had exposure very early on, you know, to, to basketball and, and college basketball, things like that. And I always remember Mr. Burkholder telling me, you know, you need to work on your weaknesses because in this game, scouting and things like that, people are good enough that they're going to realize what your strengths are and they're going to compensate. I mean, they're going to, okay, you know, he can't go to his left, so we're going to overplay him to his right and things like that. So I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. I understand where you're coming from, but from my perspective, it was, I I mean, and I'm a lefty, so that was – at a decided advantage in a lot of ways absolutely but on the other hand you know i i remember constantly you know dribbling with the right going up with the right and things like that because it wasn't comfortable it wasn't easy and you know i think back even when i was a policeman you know when you get in a gunfight which you hopefully you never do yeah you, the reason you you practice so much is and drawing is it needs to become muscle memory You know, you can't think about, oh, I need to unsnap this one, unsnap this one, canter the weapon back, bring it out. No, it's just got to bang. It's got to be one continuous motion. And I remember that from basketball, too. It's like, you can't think about this. You've got to just keep doing it until it's muscle memory. So I don't, I mean, from that perspective, I guess if you have a team, but, you know, think about it. You can't have one person that just shoots outside shots and one person that does this and one person that does that because – Teams are too good today that, you know, scouting is too good. Phil is is too readily available that they're going to
0: figure out what your strength is and they're going to overplay it. So you're going to have to develop that weakness. No doubt. Yeah. And uh, you know, this is way off topic from obviously the SWAT team hostage negotiation that we're going to talk about in a bit too. But I was reading a lot about the last year or so with, uh, with pro ball and, how some, some team members, you know, like, like LeBron, for example, you know, he, he got COVID, you know, which everybody did in the NBA right. and they would bring up from the NCAA, they would bring up these individuals almost as like contract players just for two weeks. So while the big stars were, were sick, you know, and they had to isolate for this period of time. So they wouldn't get anybody else in the team sick. The, these amazing players had an opportunity to actually show their chops in the meantime. And I started reading about like the, like the actual pro ballers that were already in the NBA thing. And like, Oh man, uh, this kid's gunning for my job. I better start improving on some of the areas that I've neglected for a while. And you saw like these, you know, freshmen in college and all of a sudden literally standing next to LeBron in a game, you know? And I mean, it was like their, their moment to shine. And some of these, Kids even got like year-long contracts out of it too, because they saw that there was hunger. The coaches saw that there was hunger in these young individuals that surpassed those that were already on the team, you know, and and they saw that it it was like, it's what we're talking about, like working on your weaknesses, right? You know, and I'm sure it's way different. I played baseball for nine years too, you know, and I was always working on weak areas, you know, just like, just like the coach would tell you too, business, it's like, okay, this isn't something that I want to do. <laughs> it's something I don't want to get good at. So I might fill the gap. But now these players, you would see that they were so hungry. These kids that would be like brought up just for two weeks and end up getting year contracts just because their drive outpaced the actual existing players that would not care to improve on their weaknesses.
1: Yeah. But don't you think, you know, think about that. Yeah, we would all I mean, when we first start anything, it's new, it's fun, it's exciting. You know, we're revved up and all that kind of stuff. And then you're 20 games into it and you're traveling at three o'clock in the morning and, you know, all that kind of stuff where where I like to see the differentiation. I I remember the the story I heard about Kobe Bryant, you know, and again, I think this is what differentiates elite premier athletes from Mm -hmm you know, I mean, good NBA players is I, I remember a story that, you know, Brian went up for a shot, got hit on the elbow, missed the shot. Lakers lost the game. Ref didn't call foul. And so they went in the locker room, had their after game talk. And Brian put on his practice gear, grabbed a manager, went to the practice gym and said, all right, I'm going to shoot hundreds of shots now. And every time I do, I want you to hit me on the elbow. Every time I want you to hit me on the elbow. And and that's the difference between, I think, an elite athlete and, a, a good NBA player. And, and you know, it's that I will, this may never happen again, but if it does, I'm going to be ready for it. I'm going to, I'm not going to miss this the second time. And it's keeping that drive going, you know, 80 games, 90 games, hundred games into the season. And when you listen to these, I, I was listening the other day to the news and I forget who was, who was talking. And he's like, yeah, you know, the, the regular season, we just got to get through it so that we can get to the playoffs. And that's like, oh my God. Wow. Yeah and I'm like and they were in the playoffs. I had somebody on Minnesota I think like that and it was like really that's your attitude? I just got to get through this so that you know I mean the season really starts when we get to the playoffs. Wow. Like <laughs> I hope
0: not. Yeah, no kidding. That's time to hone everything up, man, to, to yeah. get focused and to bond as a team and get closer and know know what everybody's good at, know who you can depend on and what type of circumstance. Yeah, for sure. Right. Then, I mean, it's <laughs> – who was that? What, t- what team was I, that? I want to
1: say it was somebody on
0: Minnesota. I, it, I
1: was watching the ESPN.
0: Well, it's Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> no offense, but you said that so I did. So, my <laughs> wife's really so. I'm in big trouble. <laughs> They're not exactly known for a lot of their sports. True. <laughs> 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 they were at one point in time. I mean, the Minnesota Twins for baseball they they were they were a force to be reckoned with at one point in time. You know, but I mean, I'm talking like twenty twenty five years ago. You know, just like <laughs> who knows they'll come back. You know, because for yeah. the longest time, even the even the, I mean, I'm in Chicago, right? The Cubs were just like an afterthought for many years, you know, and they're prior to just a few years back, it was like the last World Series that they won was 1915 or 05 or something like that. It was like a hundred years, man. So whatever, maybe Minnesota will come back. Love you, Minnesota. Thanks. <laughs> There's some unfollows going on. <laughs> yeah, I gonna say, I'm not listening to this guy anymore. No, really? I love you. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. Yeah. laughs> See, this is why we're having an episode two you know, because this is the kind of vibe that we have. I like it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) My dad used to always be like, you know, candidate, candidate, you're not a candidate. Get out
0: of here. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Thanks for diving into that with me a bit. Cause I mean, you talked a little bit about when you're a policeman, right? And, how you would have to practice your draw a lot and i had a private security agency for four years and i was also a police cadet when i was 16 for several years too law enforcement was going to be my career you know after a a military tour but i ended up not going in the military for medical reasons i had a history of asthma the marines just didn't want to take me because of that you know just uh, interesting lines they draw Mm -hmm. but I remember in trainings, you know, as you're talking about like muscle memory, right? And one of the biggest things that I remember that was a weakness of mine were building searches and specifically like building search exercises. And specifically, it was looking up, you know, and it was a, that was my weak area because I would notice everything around in the room, but I was so laser focused on that plane. That there were times when I was with my team and it was multiple times that somebody would be up on a shelf or something like that, dude. And it probably took me like 13, 14 times to actually always do that. Because what do you do when you're doing a building search? You, you know, right? right? You, you go in and you're just, you kind of glance at the room, look behind the door, see if there's anybody that's in there, but you, you never really. Go up, especially oh, when was a let, let the dog do it, you know? Yeah, yeah, there you go. I didn't have a canine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But translating that into, you know, the, the hostage negotiation, that's a whole different ball game, man. Totally. And, yeah you know, I, I just got done with uh, Chris Voss's book. I was telling you, never split the difference because he was the lead negotiator for the FBI for many, many, many years. and he equates a lot of his negotiations to business, but he also always talked about learning. So going back to this like covering your weaknesses, like every single situation was a learning experience for the negotiator. You know, and to try to continue to hone in your skills. How did that go for you? And how did you even get into that, man? That's a uh, that's intriguing.
1: Yeah, I, I was I was lucky. You know, I've always wanted to be associated with the best, and 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 in law enforcement, you know, in, in a metropolitan police department, you know, in a, in a county's uh, sheriff's department or something like that. SWAT is usually the best. They're the best. The best officers to start with, they get the best training, the best equipment, and things like that. So when there was an opening for a negotiator, I put in for it, and you know had to do the physical fitness test, had to do all the psychological stuff, had to go through the interviews, had to you know have my old bosses and that be you know what do you think would this guy make an into a good person? And then finally got on, and I was green. I, I mean, I didn't know a lot. I, I remember my first. And, and we would train and we would train through scenarios. We would practice different things. and We would act as, you know, the bad guy or the hostage and stuff like that. And I'll, I'll never forget this. It was there's a, a barricaded person with a hostage behind this door. Now negotiate with them. And, and I had no, this is day one. And, and the hostage is like,
0: help me, help me. I mean, the hostage is screaming the well, whole time. Up. Sorry, it was my voice. It, uh, no, no, not you. Uh, no, I'm, thinking, I'm like, does that really ever happen? <laughs> yeah, it does.
1: Because the hostages are always like, you know, hey, focus on me. Focus on me. And I spent the entire time focused wow. on the hostage. And the, you know, and what I learned was you, you take the hostage out of the equation, unless it can help you, but you take the hostage out of the equation, and you focus on the bad guy. You, you know, hey, what do you want? Why are we here? You know, things like that. Hey, you want to let that person go? You know, they're paying the neck. They're, they're screaming. They're, they need medicine. They're, they're, they're injured, whatever it was to try, you know, to get them out. But going back, you know, as a policeman, 99% of what you did was face-to-face with another individual. So Mm -hmm. I'm pulling you over to give you a speeding ticket. I'm, you know, answering a radio run for a fight or a domestic. I'm knocking on your door, say, call the hospital, grandma, and they can't get a hold of you. So you you were able to see visual clues. You know, if you're talking to somebody and they're kind of, you know, looking around, that may mean they're going to run. They're looking for a way to escape. Or, you know, if they're talking to you and they're balling up their fists, Well, maybe they want to fight you. Well, you can see that. You can take those visual clues and you can act appropriately, sit them down, handcuff them, put them in your car, Whatever's appropriate for why you're there. But as negotiators, we were not with the person we were negotiating with. So we had to figure things out based on what people were saying, what they weren't saying and how they were saying it. And a lot of times, you know, we're over here for two hours talking about something when the real issue is over here. And we haven't even gotten to that yet. And I guess I'll end it with this. The way we used to describe what we did was kind of think of a teeter-totter or a seesaw at the park, you know, when we were all kids and we would grow up. And when we started, the person we're negotiating with, their emotional side is way up in the air and the rational side is way down on the ground. And over time, asking them open-ended questions and getting them to talk, hopefully you bring that teeter-totter that seesaw to equilibrium. And then over more time... You get to the point where the rational side is up in the air and the emotional side is down on the ground. And when the emotional side is, is down on the ground, and you're you're dealing with a rational person, that's the time you can talk about letting the hostage go, putting the gun down, coming out, and things like that. You can't do that when you know somebody's screaming and they're you know hyped up and they're moving around and stuff like that. And that's why you ask those open-ended questions to get them to talk and burn off a lot of that emotional energy.
0: That's incredible. Those are powerful too. The open-ended questions, a lot of hows, and from what I've seen, you almost try to—maybe uh, you did this too—you redirect the focus is almost trying to get the bad guy to solve your problem as the negotiator. Yeah. You know, so if they were to say—and this is one of the things I was picking up from Chris's book—is that you know, in those scenarios, and this this translates into business because if you're in a business dealing and you have a customer that's, you know, de- demanding or somebody who's about to buy from you that's almost demanding something specific. You know, for example, like in my company, we don't reduce prices. You know, we don't cut deals or anything like that. It's just the price is the price and it, it goes into it. It's a premium offering, very similar to Apple, mm-hmm. right? You, Best Buy will or Target or whoever will actually put sales on Apple products because that's them and it's coming into their own margin. But you go to the Apple store, there's never ever any sales from, from Apple yeah. directly. It's just, here's what it is. It's awesome. We know it's awesome. That's why we're not giving any deals. You know. And there's a lot that goes into it, right? Like I've seen memes, like, you know, when it's like, you're not paying me for my time today, you know, for the one hour I put into it today, you're paying for the 10 years that it took me to get this good and this fast, Because I am the best at this now, at this point. I'm talking about, generally speaking, somebody in that scenario. And those open-ended questions, you know, did you have things like if somebody says, well, I want this amount of money, you know, in in two hours or something like that. And one of the questions I picked up was like, well, how am I supposed to do that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. You asked them that. And and that was the other thing. We never gave anything without getting something. So I'm not going to get, you know, hey, I'm hungry. I want a pizza. Okay, what are you going to give me? You know there, there was, and and I think the the overarching thing of of all this, and and you know uh, what you're doing is creating a relationship as a as a hostage negotiator and a hostage taker or a barricaded subject. You're creating a relationship, just like a husband and wife or a boss or a subordinate or you know parent child, whatever it is. You're creating relationship, and the overarching thing that I always took away from this is the, is is one word. And that word was trust. And we had to, we had to develop or build trust with that person. And there were a lot of times where people would say, okay, I'll come out, but you got to promise me I'm not going to go to jail. And we would have to say, well, when you do come out, you are going to go to jail, but then we would deflect the conversation to to something more positive and and try to take the, and the reason we did that, I mean, it's not that we didn't try to use it to our advantage, But there was a good chance that a year from now or two years from now, we'd be right back here negotiating with that same person. And if they ever felt we lied to them, then we were done. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, you go out and you have an affair on your wife. I mean, she may forgive you, but she's never going to forget. You know, she's never going to be in a situation where, oh, yeah, I trust Terry again. And that's the same way when you're negotiating with somebody. If you don't have that trust, if you don't have that relationship, you got to bring in another negotiator. You've got to bring somebody else in because they don't trust you. And there's nothing you can do that is ever going to get past the fact that, they, you know, no, nope, don't want Tucker here. You know, get lost because I don't trust him. He lied yeah. to me the last time. So
0: trust was a huge part of what we did did that ever happen on like the, the first engagement was something to where you had to swap out negotiators yeah. halfway through? Yeah. What would cause that?
1: I, I don't, I don't like, you know, you're trying to connect on some level. And, and that was, that was the hard part about negotiating. So if, if somebody said, um, you know, I, I'm trying to get, think of an example. Uh, somebody said, you know, I am, you know, expletive, Whatever at my wife, and you said, Oh, you seem a little mad. You totally missed what they just said. You totally you have to get down in the weeds in the mud with these people. I mean, you have to get down yeah. on their level, and, and that is that's a hard thing to do, but and, and it's an exhausting thing to do, you know. But you have to, when they say something to you, the easiest thing to do if you don't know what to say is to parrot back what they said and put an emotion to it. So, you know, it's like, oh, man, you're really pissed off at your wife, aren't you? Yeah, I really am. Now now you're developing that relationship. Now you're, yeah, he gets me. I understand. So if you're negotiating and you're not developing that relationship, like, yeah, this isn't working. We got to switch you out for somebody else because
0: they're just not resonating with you. For sure, and it's uh, it's negotiators are still human too, and I'm sure you saw some emotions rise up in some as well, which emotion is not supposed to be in it, which is interesting because when you when you parallel that to business. Right. I mean, I mean, founders, CEOs, you know, it, it's a different story. I mean, this is literally my life, mm-hmm. you know, but I've had to even train myself over time in those kinds of business dealings. I mean, with its investor, potential investor or whatever, because it's, it's numbers at that point, And it's sort of just a, if you want to call it a game, but it's to where when you're talking with somebody, it's like you take negotiate, when you take the emotion out of the negotiations, you can pay attention a lot better. Because you're not clouded by anything that you're thinking. Because what I've found, anyway, is that when you start to derive conjecture as to what they're thinking right then and there, without something that they directly told you, that's where you can get yourself into trouble, and you start almost trying to predict the future.
1: Yeah. What do they say? The best salespeople are not the ones that are the best talkers; they're the best listeners, and that's, that's what we were as as negotiators. You know, you had to be like, hey. Am I hearing you right? Are you saying, and then you would pair it back to them. And if you were wrong, I mean, they would be like, no, you idiot. That's not what I mean. This is what I mean. This is, you know, oh, okay. Sorry. You know, I thought you were talking about something else, but that's the, that's the difference between listening to respond versus listening to understand. And, you know, we're society right now is kind of at the point where we're just listening to respond you know, hurry up, Rick, say what you're going to say because I want to get my two cents in versus, oh, Rick, okay, Uh, you know, I may or may not agree with what you said, but okay, help me understand that. Where are you coming from from that? When we're in that kind of a relationship, we can get all kinds of things done because now I'm like, oh, okay, I get where Rick's coming from or Rick, you know, thinks, well, hey, Terry wants to understand where I'm coming from. Again, you're developing that relationship and if you've got that relationship, I'm much more willing to do business with you as opposed to oh, you're just here to get money from me. You know, For you sure. don't understand yep. me. You've got to understand me, just like we had to under try to understand the you know, the person. And you know, there were a lot of times, you know, there was a movie in the 90s called The Negotiator. I don't know. You know Samuel L. Jackson. Sam Jackson. This, yep. You know, yep. <laughs> and it's like, you know, he does everything. He's like Superman of negotiating, you know. And when I go on podcasts, people ask me, is that the way it is? I'm like, no. So oh. I may be negotiating, but there may be there, there is there's another negotiator sitting right next to me, listening to everything that's going on. That's ton of ears, listening. yeah, for yeah. sure. And then there's three or four other negotiators, kind of out working yeah. the crowd, doing their you know intelligence, you know, explaining this to me. Why are we here? So you may get a note from the person sitting next to you that says, "Don't talk about his mother." Because the reason we're here is because he had a big fight with his mother. So you don't want to inflame that. So don't talk about his mother. So it just like in business, it's a team effort. It's not like, you know, hey, I go in and I'm the closer. Well, yeah, but all the people who came before you, all the people who did the due diligence, you know, and talked to other competitors and talked to other people. Now I'm 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 prepared to close because all these other people did their
0: work. That's so awesome. Everything comes full circle, doesn't it? It does. I do really love the parroting method, too, because I've used that in sales engagements. I've used that in just customer relations. I've used everything. I'll even use it in like a form of a question. So in like your example, like, man, I'm really pissed off at my wife. You know, I'll, I'll repeat like the most important two or three words in that sentence in the, in the form of a question like your wife. You know, and like a, even like a downward tone of voice We're by the way, everyone listening, Terry's dropping gold on this, <laughs> on this podcast today. It's awesome. This is going to help you close any deal and also better all of your relationships by <laughs> even if you just pick up parroting, that's it. That's literally it. Right. So it's like, Oh, your wife, you know, and even the downward inflection is like tactical empathy. You know, it, they can hear it in your voice. I'll do this in sales engagements where it's like, you know what? Those last guys that we that we worked with, you know, I never felt like we were safe. Safe? You know, I'll repeat like one word. Yeah, because, one word. Yeah. yeah. And then you just pause and you let the air fill with silence. And it's almost like they feel compelled to expound on what they just said and give you more information without you actually having to pull it out of them.
1: And that's that's a huge point you just made there. And that was something that I had to learn. And most of us had to learn the importance of or how to use silence to your benefit, Mm, because when you're talking to somebody, you know, and their emotional end is way up in the air and they're, you know, you're asking questions, they're burning off that emotional energy and then they stop talking and you get that. And we don't like that. It's uncomfortable. Somebody <laughs> wants to fill it, and what you want to do is resist the temptation to fill it. Shut up, Terry. Don't say a word, because he'll or she will start talking again. And you—that's exactly what you said. They'll want to fill it, and then they'll start talking again. And, and you're right. Full circle. Here we go again. I you can that. use it in business. We use it as negotiators. They're just as uncomfortable as you are, right? With exactly. the silence. But yeah. you got. But you know that. And they don't realize the psychology that's going on. So you just, you don't say anything. Or like you said, you just say one word. Really.
0: <laughs> I love it. <laughs> There's other trainings I've had too. And, you know, in uh, like neuro-linguistic programming and, and all of these things. So where it's you know, the, the open-ended questions are great. The how's and the what's are freaking phenomenal. And then the where's and the when's you never, ever, ever want to use why, because why almost like causes, it, it's actually almost like offensive in the subconscious world, because then you feel like, like almost what you don't believe me or something, what I, yeah. whatever I just said, or it's also, they feel compelled to make something up. Yeah, so it, it, those open-ended questions that are hows, whats, whens, and wheres are the most powerful ones, and completely throw out why. Yeah, tell me why we're here today. Yeah, that's a it command. That's beautiful. Yeah. yeah, exactly. The silence yeah. is freaking amazing. I love yeah. the silence. <laughs> it's very effective, but we don't like it. It's uncomfortable. Yeah. How did you? If feel you feel can the first learn time it, you it used it's a great that. tool. Yeah, because the first time I used silence, I mean, this uh, it was probably like a decade ago, you know, to where I just sat there. And it's like I almost started sweating in places that I didn't know I could sweat in. And what seemed like... 18 minutes you know was actually more like four seconds of silence that's it until they started talking and then i was more like oh thank god as soon as they begin, the same time I was like it works oh my god
1: it does it's, it's i mean we are creatures of habit and i mean there's you know it's it's 2022, there's been tons of studies done about how people interact with each other and what's the most effective way to sell or, you know, to get what you want and things like. I mean, there's thousands of books out there, but it, it still goes back to trust and that connection, making that connection with another human being. I don't care if this guy just shot and killed, you know, a room full of five year olds. You still have to you still have a job to do. You still have things that you you know, you've got to try to get this guy I was safely, and I'll tell you a quick story. So, we were negotiating with a 15-year-old kid who had a gun and was barricaded, and we had done everything. We had known well, I was like, I, I don't, I'm doing everything, I, it, and we're not working. So, we told the kid, we're like, hey, we'll call you back. We hung up. We got together, kind of, you know, in a big huddle. It's like, I, I don't know. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And finally, somebody said, well, he's, it's a kid. Let's scare him. Let's be a parent. Let's scare him. So we did we came up with the deal we were gonna break a window, throw in a flashbang grenade that doesn't explode. It's not like a regular grenade, it just produces a bright light and a loud sound, and see if we could scare him into coming out. So we we had the tactical team break a window, throw in the grenade, bang, big bang goes off, re- bright light. Ten minutes later he was out. You know, it's like, <laughs> oh, okay, well, yeah, no you, know, you
0: try something unconventional. Yeah. Was there a hostage in that scenario or was it just No, him? he was just barricaded. I gotcha. Okay. <laughs> I figured as much as you were telling the story, it's like, I don't know how well that would go with a hostage, but if it's just a 15-year-old kid by himself, yeah, yeah. freak like, him out. Oh, nothing else is working. Let's try this. You know? Yeah, right on. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I, that was one story. What's one of your most unforgettable experiences doing this?
1: Had a well. I'll tell you. I'll tell you a funny one, and then I'll t- I'll tell you a, a serious one. A funny yeah. one. Um, you know, a lot of these negotiations take hours. You know, they go on for two, three, four, five hours, and you're you're, you're just biding time. As long as nobody's hurt, you know, somebody you know, the guy starts shooting or something, the tactical team's going to go in and take care of business. So this this guy, you know, we get a call. I get to the scene. I was working that night, and I'm talking to the district cops, and I'm like, "What's the deal?" He's drunk. He's barricading himself in his house with a gun and his wife. Okay. So do you have him on the phone? Yeah, we do. So let me talk to him. So I started talking to him. And you never, almost never, within the first few minutes, ask somebody to come out or ask somebody to do something. You, you want to burn off a lot of energy. So, But I just had a feeling with this guy. I talked to him about 15 minutes and I said to him, what would it take for you to come out? Oh, there was this like pregnant pause and he's like, give me a beer. I said, if I got you a beer, I'd have your word that you would come out. He said, do I have your word that I could drink it? <laughs> and I said, you have my word. He said, then give me a beer. So I gave $5 to one of the district guys. I said, go down to the store and, and buy a beer. And the tactical team put it on the front porch. And I called him back and I said, your beer is on the front porch, but you don't get it until your wife comes out. You put down the gun and, and you come out. He's like I still have your word that I can drink it. I said you still have my word. All of a sudden the front door flies open. Here comes his wife. Here he comes with his hands up. We handcuff him, let him drink his beer
0: off the jail he goes. So that was <laughs> That was You uh, still you still held up your end of the deal though. We did. Even after yeah. you had handcuffs We're not lying on, to he had handcuffed still you. held up. Yeah. Yeah. I told you you could drink the
1: beer. You can drink the beer, but then you're going to jail. <laughs> so that was kind of a funny one. A serious one that that I I, I still remember this one. Um Started about eight o'clock at night. This guy wanted to kill himself, wanted to commit suicide. So he slit his wrists and that didn't work. And then he thought it was a good idea to turn the gas on in his stove and stick his head in the oven. I didn't quite get that one, but that didn't work either. I've never so, heard of that. Wow. Yeah, I have neither. And so then he gets a gun and he calls one of his relatives and one of his relatives calls the police and we get there and I'm talking to him. And it's probably four o'clock in the morning now. And he's like, you know, and, and we had developed a good relationship. Things were great. I, I was really, I was excited that he was going to come out. And he's like, you know, I, I'm really tired. He said, I'd like to come out. I said, good. I said, do that. I said, just put the gun down. I said, take the phone, go outside. And when you get out there, just do what the tactical guys tell you to do. I'll come down to the scene and we'll talk face to face some more. He's like, you know, I'd really like that. It's like, okay, but don't hang up the phone. So what's he do? hangs up the pump because we're conditioned at the end of a phone call to hang up the phone. So we're conditioned to do that. So I didn't think much of it, but about 15 seconds later, one of the tactical guys comes on the radio. It's like, we heard a gunshot. I thought you got to be kidding me all this. and, And, and you shot yourself. He did shot himself in the head, but he shot himself at an angle where the bullet went under, like right in the temple, went underneath his skin around his scalp and out the other side, never penetrated his skull, never got to his brain. And I'm thinking three times you tried to kill yourself tonight. That's God saying, ah, uh-uh, eight your time. <laughs>
0: yeah. No kidding. Not coming up.
1: But he, he survived. He lived. And you know, I, I don't know whatever happened to him, but it was just one of those things where I put a lot of emotional energy into it and I felt good about it. And then it just went to hell in a handbasket, just like that. And he shot himself. Fortunately, he didn't kill himself, but sometimes you do the best you can. And I'd say 90% of the time, We were able to get the person out safely, but about 10% of the time, they chose to end their life. And I don't mean to sound callous or crass with this, but I never lost any sleep over that because one, I knew I had great training. Two, I knew I worked incredibly hard to get this person out. And three, think about it. What we were probably dealing with had been festering for, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. And you're supposed to come in sight unseen, not knowing this person and resolve it peacefully. I mean, that's a big ask on any day. But in in that regard, it was like, look, I'm doing the best I can. It's up to you whether or not you want to see tomorrow or not.
0: Yeah, no kidding. Well, wow. you're touching on, a, on another topic here that I think we could probably uses our final topic here today. And that's the the one of failure. Because as you're as you're going through, it, it's like you never lost any sleep over that. So it was like one out of 10, right? You you could take a look back, reflect and be like, you know, I, w- I had a 10% failure rate, you know, out of everything that, that I've ever done, but I, I still had my great training, I never lost sleep over it. You know, did it take you any sort of self-growth or a reflection to get to that mindset because I know for me that it did because it and I still see this with a lot of, of people that I speak with is that they're it's two things one they dwell on past failures you know as almost like a reason not to move forward from where they're at right now because they don't want to fail again or somehow or another, maybe they've had a lot of successes and they're perfectionists, right? And, and they're so scared to mess up or fail on just even one little part of it. Like in your case, like one tenth, 10%, but still it's like if the project is 90% good, if it's business, if it's whatever or a marriage, you know, and, and you're, but you're thinking, well, I'm going to mess up at least a few times. And they might not have had any previous experience with that situation, but yet they won't move forward because they're just afraid of failing and how that's going to mess up their life or mess up other things. So it's like dwelling on past failures and then also not moving forward because you feel like you just might not do it the right way.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I think the road to success is paved with failure. I, I mean, there's, there's nobody who's been successful in life that hasn't failed, I think, in some way, somehow, at some time. Yeah. And, you know, I think part of, part of being able to have failure or to deal with failure is you have to be grounded in something. You have to believe in something that's bigger than yourself, whether it's God, whether, I, you know, I mean, for me, it was, you know, there was always after we had a call up, it's like, hey, let's go out to the bar. Let's go out. to And for me, it was like, no, I don't want to go get drunk. I don't want to, you know, do that kind of stuff. I want to go home because my family grounded me. And yeah, I would tell my wife, I mean our daughter was young, but I I, I would tell my wife what was going on and you know, you know, and, and we would talk about it and and having somebody that you can kind of bear your soul to and say, Yeah, you know, gosh, I'm exhausted. I worked my butt off and the guy still shot himself. You know, and okay, how do you feel about you know? And my wife then starts doing the same thing that I just was doing. You know, she starts telling you know, well, how do you feel about that, Terry? And you know, well, tell me about it. (laughs) And doing the same thing for me, but you have to ground you. There's got to be something in your life that's bigger than you. And I think if you do that, if you have that, if you don't, I feel sorry for you. I mean, you should try to find whatever that is, whatever you know makes you tick, whatever you believe in, whatever you're willing to die for, Mm -hmm. and then use that. As your your touch point, you you know, your your anchor to to venture out, you know, to to get out there and make mistakes. And I, I always tell young people, especially if there's something in your heart, something in your soul that you believe you're supposed to do, but it scares you, go ahead and do it. Because at the end of your life, the things you're going to regret are not going to be the things you did. They're going to be the things you didn't do. And by then it's going to be too late to go back and do them.
0: Yeah. That's always a thing. There was a, where was I? Oh, I was at my barbers the other day. Okay. And there was a a gentleman, he, he, he was 61 years old. I don't know him. And there's a reason why I know he's 61 because he said it out of his own mouth when he was in there. And the barber I see is, this is about regrets, by the way, this is where this story is going. The, The, uh, the way that they book right there's only two two barbers in the shop that i go to they're amazing right they're they're just in the suburbs but they used to work in the city at at these premier barber shops just incredibly amazing Uh, i mean look you know amazing fades right you can see me right there you look good (laughs) thanks brother (laughs) just the dude walks in and the only way to book an appointment is actually through an app online vagaro right and that's it and they're always full you know, they don't take walk-ins ever because they are always booked up. You know, the, they, they've they built this over years, you know, and sometimes it's hard for me. I have to book like three weeks out and traveling so much. I need to make sure that I get, you know, like my next five appointments set up because I get this trimmed up every single week, you know, so I've got to strategically plan this w- w- just to make sure I get get in. I can't go in just by booking the same day. That never, ever happens. So he comes in and he saw, me. I was like, yeah, I, n- I need a haircut. And they're like, well, we don't take walk-ins. You have to go online. He's like, uh, well, I figured, but I called here and your voicemail's full. And so they're like, "Well, we don't check that. The only thing we do is we text message reminders to people. That's it." You know, cuz otherwise, you, know, you just go online and book with the Vegaro app. And then he goes, "Well, I'm 61 years old. So I'm a little old school." And the guy got he was belligerent. You know, and was not very friendly at all with these individuals. And you could tell, and I'm sure you saw this in law enforcement too, you could tell he was already in a mood when he walked through the door by his body language. You know, and was just there looking to just rail somebody. That, that's it, verbally anyways, you know. And then when he, he was standing there like, well, it's no problem. You know, we have people that stop in here and we can book the appointment for you. When, when you walk in here, not a, not a big deal. So they offer that, like, just wait a couple minutes. I'm going to finish up with the the cut that I'm doing right now. And then I'll help you book an appointment, you know? So it might've been like 10 minutes. You know, remember that whole, like, it seems like an eternity thing, but really it's a short period of time. It was probably like 90 seconds that he waited. That, that's it. And then he, then he like, said, just said, uh, I mean, F it and, and walked out the door. You know, that's it. And one of them was, uh, is, She's 24 years old, something like that, and it's a dude and a woman who cut hair there. I get it done by both of them, and she's like, "I hate old people." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm 61. I don't feel old. So yeah, right <laughs> on, right on. And, and but this is what I'm thinking, you know. And I, I'm there, and I lo- I mean, even on the show, it's like the the demographic that listens to my show, all in right now. The the crowd that I resonate with the most are those that are between 18 and 25. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just a a passion, a heart that I've always had, because I know what I went through when I was that age, and I don't see things any different. It's a tough time because, uh, you know, it's a time where society expects a lot of decisions from you that are supposed to affect the rest of your life, which I think is asinine. You know, it's ridiculous. But when I talk, I'm like, Liz, it's okay. I'm like, you know, that dude obviously has a lot of regrets in life, you know, because you could just tell what's going on. And it's like, he's gotten to the point. And I'm like, you know, I remember my my grandmother who would uh, always want to stay up on the latest stuff. I've known elderly people that are in their eighties and nineties and even approaching 100 that would jump on computers and always try to learn the latest things that were there, you know? And it's so interesting because I would see them and they're like so fulfilled and able to look back in their life and smile at certain things. Of course they would mess up and they had the failures like we talked about too. But this was a dude that, obviously had some regrets you know you could just see it on his face like he doesn't ever have a good day <laughs> and it's by his choice too right. and then also i'm talking with liz who's 25 thanks for letting me monologue for a bit too because this really grabbed my heart man you know because i was able to to even coach her on the spot and i'm like you know so many people and i said this on a solo podcast liz, so many people die at age 25 and aren't buried until 75. Uh, and still, at 61 years old, that dude still probably has like a good 20 years left. And he still absolutely can do something right now. He can't make up for what he didn't do already, but he still has an opportunity to do something else that he wants to right now. There's no age limit from when you can start. There's also no age limit at the beginning from when you're supposed to be able to start. Uh, so it, I love what you're saying there, man, about the regrets and failures. And if there's one piece of advice, what's your favorite age group that you love talking to? You talked about kids already, right? Oh,
1: I love young people.
0: I mean, oh they're so gosh.
1: pliable, so malleable. So, you know, it's like, gosh, you've got it all right there. And my, my brother and I, um, and my brother was drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers and and so our whole family was, was jocks, you know, growing up. Yeah. We, were, we were all basketball, baseball players. And we, we've, we talk even today, it's like if we knew, you know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago about, you know, mindset and, and working our bodies smarter and, and, and things like it, we would have been so much better athletes than, than we were. And we were, we were all yeah. very good athletes and you think about what, what young people have access to today in terms of knowledge. And 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 I always encourage young people especially, be lifelong learners. It's kind of like what you were saying, 80, 90 years old, jump on a computer. I don't know. I mean, when I started my blog, I I, I was kind of like that man. I was like, blog, oh, I shouldn't start a blog. I'm 61 years old. I can barely turn my cell phone on, you know. So starting a, a blog was ridiculous. And but it it took me four months to do four pages, but it was four excuse me, four months where I learn. Like, I don't know what that means. I got to go find out. I got to go learn. I'm sure my 25-year-old daughter could have done it in 15 minutes. But for me, I don't know about that. I don't understand that. I've got to go learn it. And I've always tried to be that way. I don't know. What does that mean? How, tell me more about that. And I guess that's one thing that I think made me a good negotiator. I wanted to learn. Tell me about you. Why are we here? What's going on? Blah, 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 blah. So, That curiosity is something that, well, at 61, I haven't lost it yet. So I hope young people never lose it, that they keep being curious. Ask ask questions.
0: You got it. Terry said it, everyone. Keep being curious. He's got an amazing website, motivationalcheck.com, and on Instagram, at sustainableexcellenceauthor. Terry, amazing having you on again, brother. Well, thanks,
1: Rick. It's always fun talking to you.